In announcements, uh, other than the Lord's Supper is this morning, uh, no, there is no fellowship meal, but there will be snacks uh, back there still. Maybe some extra snacks, I don't know. Oh, apparently lots of snacks, so maybe you could turn it into a meal if you need to. <clears throat> we have the call to worship, to come into his presence with thanksgiving in our hearts. I'll give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, and make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him, sing psalms unto him, talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name, let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. stand and let us sing hymn 166 166 God, we ask that you continue to remember us as you've promised in your word, that our names are engraved upon your palms, Lord, and we ask, God, that we would have such truth and confidence instilled into our hearts, that you love us, Lord, with an everlasting love, as you expressed in your gospel and represent here in the Lord's Supper this morning. 
Help us, we pray, to that end, spirit of truth and comfort, that we would be drawn unto you. May we continue, Lord, to live a life in accordance to the Lord's prayer as we say together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have the responsive reading inside the bulletin, insert, part of Psalm 44. Psalm 44. Let us read it responsively. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you have favored them. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. Amen. He has here in this part of the psalm, psalm of victory and praise that God has delivered him and his people from the hand of the enemies. We must not forget, brothers and sisters, that they were commanded to take the land that was theirs by God's warrant, and uh, the inhabitants could have repented and followed Yahweh, the Lord our God, any time they wanted to. They, we go through First Samuel, for example, in the early chapters there on Wednesday night. You can see very clearly they knew the name of the Lord. They knew the miracles he did. They knew about his ark. They knew about the deliverance from Egypt, and they didn't want to submit. We know unbelievers, uh, Gentiles and surrounding um, pagans, some of them did join the, the Old Testament church. We, we know their names. They did not. And they hated God and his people so much, they wished to kill them. And they tried to kill them. And so that's the context of this psalm and other psalms. And that uh, we can also, in our own ways, the difficulties that we have, also sing this psalm of praise. Let us go before our Lord and Savior in our covenant community prayer. Glorious King of Kings and Lord of Lords, great and almighty majesty above all. We, God, who are but a drop in the bucket, as we read this morning in Sunday school class, in the sermons of Bollinger, Lord, and Isaiah, that the nations are but a drop in the bucket, and that the 
burning up of this whole world, Lord, it would not be enough of a sacrifice to appease the great glorious honor that is you. For you are infinite and eternal in all things. Help us, Lord, to continue to live in awe of who you are and to submit and follow your ways, Lord, and to be grateful and thankful, Lord, for the great mercy that you've given us through Christ Jesus. We thank you, God, that we can confess our sins. We can come before you, Lord, at any time, in any way, with our mouth, with our mind, Lord, and confess our secret sins, our sins of ignorance, in whatever way and thought, word, or deed that we have violated your holy will toward us. And we can, Lord, bring such repentance before you, such confession of our lips, knowing, Lord, that there is full forgiveness in Christ Jesus to all who believe. May this be comforting to all of us, Lord, who indeed believe and love a life of repentance, that we are forgiven and will ever be continue to be forgiven as long as Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior of this world, which is indeed forever. May it encourage and strengthen us, God, to live a life of gratitude, to live a life of honoring you, of worshiping you, of loving you, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as we are empowered by your Spirit. We pray in particular, God above, for our growth and obedience to you by learning more of your word, learning more of your law, learning more of your gospel, learning more of who you are as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to grow in education and knowledge, godly knowledge, efficacious knowledge by your spirits, Lord, to read your word, to learn, to apply your word to our lives, God. We pray in particular for our families and our children, Lord, that we would instruct them in righteousness and holiness in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the call of repentance, the call of faith, and trusting you and following you, Lord, no matter what the world would do or not do. To equip our children to grow up, to equip their children to be strong in the Lord and the might of his power. And so we ask God Almighty to equip your families, to equip your people, to equip us, Lord. It's not just our children who must learn these things, but we have to relearn them at times, Lord, and be re-educated, as it were, to be re-energized by your truth, especially as we have so much lying around us in society, God. We pray for the church to continue to instruct her members in your truth, in your word, in the application of life, God, to give them the wisdom of your word, so that they can resist the lies and the subtleties of this world, the flesh and of the devil. So we pray to that end, Lord, the growth of Christian education in our circles and other circles, Lord, not just the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but all churches that call upon the name of the Lord our God, who trust in your word and flee to Jesus Christ for salvation, that they would grow in in your knowledge and in application and in maturity, Lord. We pray for your church, God. We pray for our church that we would grow both spiritually and numerically, that, Lord, we would reach out to those who need to hear the truth, that we would grow in maturation and holiness, the depth of knowledge of your word, that we, each of us, God, would do our callings and our vocations in life, whatever that may be, on our job and at home and elsewhere, God. We have responsibilities, and we pray, Lord, that they would not be a burden upon us, Lord, but to know that you have equipped us and your providence, your special grace upon us to do what we are called to do. And that although we may slip up at times, Lord, we can still persevere and become more like Jesus, we pray. And to help and encourage one another, Lord, to know that we are not isolated, but we are the family of God, that we are here to help instruct one another, to lift one another up, to warn one another, and to encourage one another 
as the case may be. We pray to that end, Lord God Almighty, that you be with us this morning. Help us, God, to draw nigh unto you by your grace and your mercy and your long-suffering, that the Lord's Supper here, God, would strengthen our weak faith. In name we pray, for your glorious name's sake, for the growth of your kingdom. Amen. We now the tithes and offerings. God to be blessed by you, that your face shines upon us, and that we can give these tithes and offerings, Lord. We pray for your blessings and ask God that uh, we would be able to grow uh, financially and materially, God, not for our own selfish gain, but for the growth and help of your kingdom, for your families within the kingdom, and individuals and couples, Lord, that we can assist them and help them through the church, God. And we ask, Lord, for continued wisdom in using these tithes and offerings, God, for your people and for your glory. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, no, while we, yep, you may be seated. Sermon text is Mark fourteen. Fourteen Let us listen attentively to the Word of God, Mark 14, 22-25. Uh, here in this scene, of course, is the Last Supper, or the First Supper of the New Testament era, that is the Lord's Supper, as we know, and in completion, therefore, of all the types uh, in the Old Testament, so the ceremonial system uh, being completed, uh, the bulk of it through this one act. Let us listen attentively. And they were eating, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let us pray. With this text, Lord, with this holy writ, uh, by the Spirit of God moving through Mark, Lord, and explaining here in summary fashion, as Mark often does in his letter, uh, the great act of the second member of the Trinity, of your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, 
who broke his body for us and showed it through the symbolism of the Lord's Supper here and shed his blood for us, the shedding of the blood of the new covenant, Lord, the new dispensation, the new age, God, of your people that we are in now. May it, Lord, these words of our Savior be a comfort to us as we meditate upon the significance of the Lord's Supper as a sign of our past justification, as a seal of our present comfort, and as a pledge we read here in verse 25 in particular of our future blessedness with Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. In a sense, the Lord's Supper is timeless. Not that it is eternal per se. It certainly had a beginning, but it points to a timelessness in heaven when we will have fellowship with Christ for eternity. But that timeless fellowship started in the past before we knew God and continued into the present until today. That is, the Father calling his people from eternity past and unfolding that redemption into time and space where we are today. The Supper reminds us that that Christ is with us forever, in fact. It is a wonderful picture of intimacy and fellowship, as well as a sign of our justification in Christ, a seal to comfort us now, and a pledge of future blessedness, as we shall see in this sermon. Let us look, therefore, more carefully upon and focus our thoughts on Christ this day as we have communion with the Holy One. And the first point, then, is sign of our past justification. Verses 22 to 24, as we see here, when Christ gives the elements of his bread and of his body, of, his, of the bread and of the wine that is of his body and of his blood symbolized therein, and how he gives thanks to God Almighty and explains partly here in Mark the significance of what this means. This is my blood of the new covenant, he says, which is shed for many, his death for us. That is, he saved us. He justified us with the blood of his own body. And to get the full significance of the Lord's Supper in the understanding of the Jews during this time, about 33 AD, we have to go to the Old Testament. The language he uses here is not completely new. That is, the context in which he gives this meal during the Passover, as we know, is not completely new in how he does this activity, although it's unique in its own way, because there are other disciples, are there not? Where's Mary? <laughs> right? Where, where are the other followers of Jesus? The apostles are here with Jesus. Why? And why wouldn't they think that's strange? Well, the background here. The Old Testament precedents, Exodus 24, where the 70 have a meal with Moses, the 70 who represent Israel at the time. Have you ever eaten with a king? I know I haven't. Maybe with a senator? I don't think any of us have, except, well, perhaps a friend of ours, George Lilly, was in politics for a while. He he would go to the meals. You, You sat with a senator? Oh, a congressman. Excellent. Yeah, there you go. Or a CEO of a company, you know, billion-dollar company, big name. It would be a pretty, pretty exciting time, pretty uh, serious time. Hopefully a time of some kind of connection, what we call fellowship, to get to know the person, for them to get to know you, to get comfortable perhaps. 
Now, you're not being best friends with that senator. I don't think you are. I don't think you're on a talking basis with him for the rest of your life. Or the CEO. But a meal coming into your house is a big step. Potential step. I mean, it's one of the typical ways in which you can start making friendship and going somewhere in that relationship. So we read here, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, in Exodus 24, 9 and following, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there were, uh, was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stones. And it was like the very heaven in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. They had fellowship with the King of kings and Lord of lords with the senator of the universe, (laughs) right? That's what's going on here. That picture of fellowship, of, in this case, unity with the Father through grace. And we see the grace, of course, but on the nobles of the children of Israel, the 70 elders, the representatives of the people of God, he did not lay his hand. Well, obviously the hand of judgment. They were able, on the flip side... No laying of the hands, but they can actually sit down and not be consumed by his holy fire and have a meal. They ate and drank. A picture of sweet fellowship with the royal king of the universe. The meal was a picture of God's gracious fellowship with sinners. It was no accident that Christ, by his acts, references this event when he takes the 12 disciples, the leaders of the New Testament church, as we know, uh, they are the pillar and foundation of Jerusalem in Revelation. And although the meal, from that perspective, was unique in its origin and beginning here in 33 AD, it has an ordinary continuation with the rest of the church obviously participating as we get to the New Testament era, Paul writes as though everyone's acting and having access to the Lord's Supper. And indeed, they are there in 1 Corinthians 11. But the origins, we see a great change from the New Testament, Old Testament era into the New Testament era, using the representatives as God did in the Old Testament, showing fellowship. And so this picture here carries on that picture of fellowship. That's my point. Although it's only with the representatives, it's still ultimately with us, as we know, because we get to also participate now. That's the significance of having a meal in the ancient Near East context. And then today, I mean, you bring someone to your house, you give them a meal, you're having fellowship. Some picture of unity, and of course, in this case, is the great divide and division between God Almighty here and the person in the form of Jesus Christ having fellowship with us. This is my body. As we know, the Old Testament sacrifices are pictures of Christ. The peace offering is Leviticus 7.15. For example, the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for Thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until morning. The peace offering there is a meal offering. So there's an overlap. It's not just simply and only the Lord's Supper represents the New Testament equivalent to the Passover, or fulfills as the anti-type, as they say in theology, right? It fulfills the type or the picture that points to the future of the Passover. It is more than the Passover. It represents more than the Passover and the Passover meal. And in particular, it points to Christ, as we know, since Christ is the Lamb of God, the peace offering there uh, in Exodus 24, for example, pictures Christ, in fact. And it shows the 70 elders eating 
along with him. The bread today is a picture, a symbol, a sign of the body of Christ for us, broken for us in our stead, because he represents us. And that's the connection to the theme of this point, which is justification. It's a sign of our justification. Not only, of course, because sanctification flows from the blood of Christ Jesus, but I want to highlight justification, that he represented us and he died and took our punishment in our stead. This is my blood. And there in the Old Testament, the sprinkling of the blood was upon the people. Uh, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you, and he sprinkles it, and Moses does. And of course, the obvious Passover connection to Exodus 12.23, where uh, they also had a meal on the night of the Jewish Passover, and the symbolism of the blood there as being twofold to appease God, the whole burnt offering, and the symbolism to protect us from death and the wrath of God in the Passover. Appeasing God and his wrath is something people don't like to talk about here, even in Christian circles, unfortunately. But it's important. It's not just simply your sins are covered and forgiven, which is a great truth indeed, but that God's wrath is pacified by the death of his son. And that's symbolized in the breaking of his body, in particular the shedding of his blood. Without blood, there is what? No remission of sins. It's the theme of the Old Testament ceremonial system, to highlight that moral principle because we all deserve punishment, but Christ took our punishment instead. And the taking of that punishment, God also was satisfied. His divine justice quenched, and death passes over us forever and ever. It's a picture of our justification, as I hinted at earlier, to be accounted righteous for Christ's sake through faith alone, right? A judicial language. It's tied, obviously, to his death in Romans 5, 9. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Paul makes the clear connection of Christ and his blood. Christ talks about his blood in verse 24 here, the blood of the new covenant, the shedding of his blood for our justification, for our right standing before God Almighty, in spite of our sins. Now, of course, justification is not affected through the supper. It is by faith alone and Christ alone. But the supper is an, a, an aid in our walk as Christians, in particular for, as we see here, a seal of our present comfort, the second point. Although it points to all kinds of things with respect to redemption, because all things were redeemed through Christ Jesus and affected in our lives from his life and his death, to be sure. But in particular, it has a sealing effect for our present comfort. The second point. The weak, 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 weak faith needs help. And I think I don't need to convince us that we struggle with our faith, that it feels weak at times and it ebbs and flows, depending on what time of day it is sometimes, how we feel, what happens to us or what doesn't happen to us. Even the strong among us, we see, hey, there goes that man, there goes that godly woman. Surely they never have days of weakness and sin. But we know, we know better when we put our heads back on straight. That's not the case at all. As long as we live, 
we sin. And as long as we sin, we have evidence of a faith that needs help, a trust that needs to be strengthened to our God above. And that needs help, but not help from the super pious that reject the visible parts of God's kingdom, people who think, I don't need the Lord's Supper, I don't need the preaching of the Word of God, I don't need the fellowship of the saints, or those who think preaching or reading the Bible is all we need, perhaps. On the flip side, we don't need the Lord's Supper. Rather, God has given us a supper to support our weak faith. Because we know it's not for God. It's not as though God is hungry, he needs the food. And it's not as though the meal itself feeds us. We're not having uh, a grandiose supper. But it's simple elements that are enough to put on our lips and our mouth that we can taste and see and know that the Lord our God is good. To strengthen our weak faith. A tangible evidence, on the other hand, of Christ's love for you. When he gives us the sacraments and the Lord's Supper in particular. Thus it is a seal of comfort. It is comforting to know that you are saved and that your Father above, although you sin, is not angry with you because his wrath was satisfied through Christ Jesus. A seal is a certificate of authenticity. Anyone can hand you a paper, of course, and say, this is my graduation paper, hire me, please. But the employer wants the authentic paper, the the right one. The supper comforts us through its authentication. Insofar as it's given in a faithful church, it should encourage and comfort you that God loves you and that you are one of his own. It's there to mature our faith, the rite of maturation, whereas the baptism sacrament of initiation. And more, we have the power of the new covenants. The newness of the Lord's Supper as compared to the Passover and the meal of the Seventy should be obvious, especially in its power. No longer is the Spirit content to keep the church locked up in a small land called Israel, but now is expanded across the face of the earth. The church has matured and is ready to spread its wings out upon this world of unbelief. The supper is a seal. A seal of the Spirit upon us of more spirit-wrought faith and maturation. We have come far compared to the Old Testament saints. Not out of pride do we say that, but out of fact. that When Christ came on earth and fulfilled all the prophecies of old, he brought an extra measure of his Spirit so that now... We won't put up with church leaders with multiple wives. I like that example because it's so obvious. But they tolerated it in the Old Testament, didn't they? Christ said, no more. I'm maturing my church. I'm purifying my church in a greater measure in the New Testament era. Doesn't always feel that way, does it? (laughs) When you see your sins. But I'm here to comfort you with these words that Christ gave the supper for our weak faith to strengthen us for a present comfort right here, right now, that God loves you. This communion, then, is a tool of the Spirit to give us peace and comfort in the here and now. But the Supper, of course, is not just a sign of our past justification or a seal of our present comfort to strengthen our weak faith, but also a pledge of our future blessedness. 
We see that in particular in verse 25. Assuredly, Christ says, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I'm no longer having the supper with you anymore. This is the first time, this is the last time until I return. And thus we've never had in the flesh a meal with our Lord and Savior. But he promises to come back and have that meal until I drink it new in the kingdom of God, or the fullness of the kingdom of God, when Christ returns, and there's a new heaven and a new earth, and all sins shall be eradicated. It's Christ's last promise to us, because in heaven we will have the supper in its fullness. That is, what it represents, the fullness of fellowship, of unity with God. That sin shall no longer bar us, and our sanctification shall be utterly mature and complete. What we call the marriage supper of the Lamb a picture of eternal fellowship with God in Christ. That's what we want as Christians. This world and where we are now always reminds us of the gap and the difference between us and our Father through our Son, through His Son. But that will change when He returns. And the Supper points to that as a promise, as a pledge of the Son of God. God does not lie. He will come back, and he will fulfill this. The supper this morning is a pledge of that eternal fellowship that we have in Christ Jesus. A promise by Christ to fully sanctify you, to wipe away every tear, to give you joy for eternity. That this valley of tears will be no more and will fade away. He will return. He has promised it. And this meal echoes that pledge, that promise of our Lord and Savior. And so we should take comfort as we participate in communion this morning because of that fact. It's an encouraging pledge to give you hope for tomorrow's hard times. That these hard times, as we read in Peter these last several months, it's but temporary. We can and shall persevere through hard times because we have the Spirit of God. It gives you comfort today when we are weary and tired. It is given to trusting souls that need help. Do you need more faith? Then take the meal and you will be given more faith. The supper points to a forever love of Christ. Christ loved you enough to break his body and shed his blood for you. Christ loves you enough to comfort you weak faith today with the sealing aspect of the supper. Christ loves you enough to promise a future return. Assuredly, I say to you. Not, I'm not, maybe, maybe not. It will happen. Our lifetime or another. Praise be to his name. A return of a greater blessing than that of the present Lord's Supper. This is but a faint shadow of what we shall have in the marriage feast of the Lamb, pictured in the book of Revelation. It will be a supper of fellowship that lasts forever and ever and ever. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. And so, God above, spirit of truth and light, strengthen our weak faith, Lord. Show us through your special providence, God, that you have given us the Lord's Supper and the church, although certainly with Weakness and sin that they struggle against, God, and yet a faithful church nevertheless. And churches across this land, God, you've given us the meal as a sign of your love towards us, as, Lord, a sign of 
our justification as a present seal of comfort and as a future pledge of your return of a new heaven and new earth of perfection forevermore. Help us, God, to persevere and to be encouraged thereby this morning. Amen. We now shall have the Lord's Supper. And uh, we'll sing hymn 197 first. We sing the first two verses and then split the last after the supper. 197.